First Timothy chapter one, by way of reminder, Paul's writing this letter to a young pastor, Timothy, his son in the faith, who is not wanting to pastor anymore. He wants to leave Ephesus. And Paul is writing this open letter. It's something that is to Timothy, but it's a letter that everybody gets to see. And of course, it's not just for Timothy, but all the young Timothys and for all the believers that would be serving the Lord in the thousands of years after this letter was written. And uh, we looked last week how he told them he can't just teach the church. He's also got to warn the church and he can't just feed the church with sound doctrine, but he's got to fight for sound doctrine, especially against those who are just not necessarily demonic guys are just foolish guys, just idle talk. They don't know really what they're saying. They just want to be up front and talking, even though uh, they're really not uh, ready for that. A lot of it had to do with the law and genealogy. Uh, as we read on in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you see like one hand they were teaching a permissive uh, lifestyle, which would very much go hand in hand with Ephesus being the center of Diana worship, which had prostitution and all kinds of immorality in it. But also there was another group teaching legalistically, which again would have catered to those Jews that were looking to the old covenant still. And uh, he just says plain last week, the law is not for believers. It's meant for unbelievers to help them see that they're sinners. The law cannot make us righteous. It can only help us see the truth about ourselves and that we are sinners needing a savior. Well, as we break these verses down, let's look at 12 to 14 first. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. So in verse 12 again. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Our Lord, our Lord is the same Lord that Paul had, Jesus. And our Jesus chose Apostle Paul to write half the New Testament. He saved this gnarly guy who hated Christians, probably more than anybody's ever hated Christians. And the Lord snatched him from killing Christians and in a moment converted him. And within three days of being in Damascus, he's now preaching Jesus. He's so upsetting everybody, they had to sneak him out over the wall, lowering him in a basket down on the outside of the wall of Damascus so they would have killed him. But he says here, the Lord enabled me. This word Enduno musanti. Enduno musanti. It's a very powerful word. It, it means that God strengthened overabundantly what Paul needed to be a minister of the Lord. It's the same word in that famous verse, Philippians 4.13. You know, the one the movie stars always like to quote. <laughs> I can do all things. That's what they say, but there's a little more to it. Through Christ who strengthens me. It's the same word. Paul is saying, I can do all ministries because 
Christ, and the word strengthen here, again, it's, it's in a, a redundant form in saying it's not just enough strength. It's an, a strength that's far beyond the strength that I need to do the ministry. And no doubt, he's helping Timothy to say, Timothy, God enabled you also with such a power to be in the ministry also. And then he says, because he counted me faithful. Hagasato. This word is, again, it, it's, it's, a, it's counting me faithful or considering or judging me to be faithful. The whole inference is, in truth, I am not. <laughs> in truth, I am not of myself adequately faithful to be counted faithful. But God took my faithfulness, what I did have, and with his strengthening me, I am faithful by his power. I'm not standing there saying, I am faithful. I'm saying, because God's empowering me, I'm able to be faithful. I mean, isn't that the truth? Have you ever noticed the harder you try, the worse you do? And when we really try to gather up our self, you know, our steam to be obedient or to be dynamic, we, that's when we fall short the hardest. And we, we realize, wow, we are not bringing much of our power, our faithfulness in this relationship with God. But relationally, he's empowering me. He's counting me faithful because he's strengthening to be faithful, causing me not just to be faithful, but abundantly faithful. And uh, it's not of me. It's not I who do it, Paul would say, but Christ in me. And then he says, putting me into the ministry. Paul didn't take a personality test and they said, wow, you scored high on uh, public speaking. Have you ever thought about being a politician or a pastor? Or something in that field. That's not what happened. God grabbed him and dynamically saved him and then put him in the ministry. He didn't just save him to be a Christian only, but to save him to be a servant. The word here, diakonia, is the word to, to be a servant. He empowered me. He gave me a faithfulness I couldn't have attained to on my own. But he's counting me faithful. He's helping me be faithful. But then he counts it as if I'm the one being faithful. And then he gives me this power to be what? A servant. I mean, isn't that the greatest of all gifts of God? To be the servant of his people? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, what? Be the servant of all. Jesus said that. He came into human flesh, not to be a great king or to be a great strong man or to have the most beautiful voice or to do incredible miracles to amaze the multitudes. Why did God come into human flesh? In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and then to serve and serve to give his life a ransom for many. He ended his ministry that way. Remember in John 13, he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, you call me Lord and teacher. 
the word Rabboni, the chief of all teachers. You called me Lord of all lords and Rabboni, teacher of all teachers. And what do I do in this kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is amongst us. What happens when God's kingdom comes? The greatest washes your feet. And he says to them, I do this as an example that you now go and do the same. Assuredly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than him who sent me, than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Paul was put into not being the great apostle, but being a servant. And how did this happen? By the sovereignty of God. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul speaks of a truth about him and Timothy, but it's true of all of us. Who has saved us? Who called us with this holy calling? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before time began, God called us to himself. He empowered us with a greater power than we would ever need. He knew that we need to be faithful, but we can't be. So he empowered us with faithfulness and then counted us if we're the one being faithful. And then he gives us the greatest of all callings to be the least of all servants. Why? Because that's the greatest thing we can do is serve one another. And in heaven, great will be your name. Great will be your reward. Great will be your character because you'll be like Jesus who is truly in his nature a servant. It's not like Jesus is really up there bossing everybody around. Angel, give me some bread. Hey, give me some water. Hey, hey, hey. Okay, when I go to heaven, I, I, I need to stop this. I got to stop being this Lord master type guy like I am in heaven. But when I go to earth, I got to look humble, humble. Got to really work on this. Got to be meek. I got to act like a nobody. Ooh, that's going to be hard. <laughs> that, no, that is his nature. The God who spoke the world into existence, that's always been his nature. When Jesus came into human flesh, he was just acting exactly like who he is. God. Who is God? The creator of all. The one with all power. Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. What? I'll give you rest. Why? Because I am gentle and lowly of heart. And in my presence, you'll find a rest for your souls. That is who God is. He is a shepherd who picks up the weakest sheep and carries them in his arms. He is the great healer, isn't he? And so Paul says, man, I am this apostle <laughs> and I am powerful. I know it. I'm doing miracles. Paul did. There is a point where Paul was making tents and he would have rags around him just to wipe the sweat off. And people were stealing him. And they were taking him hundreds of miles away and laying them on sick people and they would be healed. 
that's some serious stuff going on here. But Paul makes it clear. God did this in me that I could be a diakonia, a servant. And he goes on in verse 13 and 14. Although I was formerly a blasphemy, a persecutor, an insolent man, arrogant guy. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Man, you wouldn't have believed it. I remember Greg Laurie years and years ago, probably a few years after he got saved, and he was speaking, and he, he said that I would be down at the beach setting, and people would come by and pass out tracks, but they would always skip me. Because they looked at you like going, no track can help you, forget it. Christianity, Christianity can't help you. God can't help you. But the guy next to you looks a little better of a candidate. And, and he would have to ask people, hey, can I have one of those? And, and because he was raised Catholic, he thought, if I throw it away, God will smite me. So he had this whole drawer of tracks. And uh, anyway, finally, he, he, he got saved, and he went back and read all those tracts. And, and, uh, but, but Paul would have been one of those guys. Paul was one gnarly dude. He truly hated Christians. He was formerly such a horrible, evil man. But... That's what salvation does. It takes the worst of the worst and uses them for his kingdom. Paul in 1 Corinthians mentions this. In chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of I. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We, there is no amount of sins that one has committed. There is no one giant sin that's so bad that God can't forgive. God's forgiveness is greater than anything man can say or do. And Paul is an example of this. The guy that would be the least Christian, the least most likely guy to ever be a Christian, definitely the least most likely guy to ever tell people to, be, to believe in Jesus and be saved, is now the guy who ends up writing half of the New Testament. Do, do we understand that? This is our God. Now it makes sense. When we think of the previous verses in 1 Timothy. Do you remember 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 and 10? Paul was saying, hey, the law is good if you use it rightly. No, and it's not for the righteous, but for sinners. And then he says in 1 
Timothy 1, 9 and 10 again, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, the, the, for the sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars and perjurers. If there's any such thing contrary to the sound of doctrine, look at that. In verse 9 and 10, Paul wasn't pointing some pharisaical picture Point his finger here. Somebody's saying, you bunch of horrible, evil people. He actually was describing himself. In verse 9 and 10, describes himself perfectly. He was a lawless, insubordinate, ungodly guy, a murderer of fathers, a murderer of mothers, a manslayer, a fornicator, a sodomite, a kidnapper, liar, Paul was a wicked, sinful man. And the law is what helped him to see it. He tells us about it in Romans 7, verse 7 through 11. For shall we say then, is the law sin in Romans 7, 7? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. This is an example, one little area in his life. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. The law was the key for Paul to see his sinful condition. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Paul describing what happened, he says, Now Saul, the future Paul, was consenting to his death, Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. In Acts 8.3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Acts 26.11, it says he punished them often. He compelled them to blaspheme. And he himself was an exceedingly enraged against those Christians. Paul just didn't say, well, you know, these Christians really ought to shut up. They don't put him in prison. No. Paul was an SS officer. <laughs> he, was, he was a pharisaical Nazi. And he hated Christians. He wanted them dead. He's the one who helped organize Stephen's stoning. He would go and get people and drag them out of their houses, it says in Acts 26. And, and, and what does he say? Murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, children homeless, maybe taking the kids off to some Jewish commune so they wouldn't be proselyting to Christianity. Kidnappers, Paul describes people. Murderers, imprison him, not just in Jerusalem, but going out into countries outside of even Israel. And of course, that's where he was heading. 
in his conversion. Again, read now again, 1 Timothy 1.9, and ask yourself, does this describe the Apostle Paul? The law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, insubordinate, ungodly, for sinners, for unholy, profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers. Paul had the law open his eyes. He wasn't this righteous Jewish rabbi. You know, God, look at me. I'm so righteous and I'm going to go kill all these Christians who are messing up the true Judaism. And being this self-righteous guy thinking that he was so perfect and pure and holy. Remember, Jesus gives that description of the Pharisee goes in to pray and the tax collector is just sitting there beating his chest going, God, I'm not worthy for I'm not worthy even that you'd forgive me. I'm such a sinner. And the Pharisee's going, thank you, Lord. I'm not like that guy over there. Thank you that I tithe. Thank you that I, you know, I'm so righteous. And Jesus said they leave. Which one is righteous? I tell you, it's not the Pharisee. But Paul, man, he was just for years and years walking around. This wealthy guy from a wealthy home, his dad spent millions of dollars and bought a Roman citizenship. So not only was he at the elite university in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, but he had a full-on trust fund. He was a trust fund baby. He was this wealthy guy, probably bought into the same neighborhood as with the high priests and the other elite Pharisees. He had the money. He had the, the whole lifestyle. And now he's going to be the hero of the Jewish community by stopping out Christianity. And he fully believed he was the most righteous guy he knew. And then God knelt him. And then he saw in the law, the mirror came up and he realized, it's me. I'm this persecutor. I'm this blasphemer. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob told us they were going to send us a Messiah. And the Messiah came and I blasphemed his name. The Messiah that was sent in the world to save the world. I was the number one blasphemer of, of the Christ, of the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of David, of the tribe of Judah. And the whole time I was this arrogant guy thinking I knew it all. And then I saw myself and I saw who I was in reality. I did do it before I became a Christian. I did it ignorantly, unbelief. Yeah, that's a whole lot better than after being a Christian and then being arrogant and, and blaspheming the Lord, but not much better, but it's a little better. But then he says this, but the grace of God was what? Exceedingly abundant. In the Revised Standard Version, it translates it this way. The grace of our Lord overflowed me. <laughs> the idea is that the grace of God just rose higher and higher like a river until Paul was drowning in that river. Paul describes it this way in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. 
And he says, how did that exceedingly abundant grace came? With faith and love. Let's just stop a minute and and go through it again. Here's Paul, outraged. He's with anger, with papers, with soldiers, with the might, with the money. He's storming down to Damascus. And what happens? The Lord just, bam, nails him right on the road, knocks him to the ground. The great light blinded everybody else. They didn't see anything or hear anything. And Jesus himself is doing the one-on-one witnessing. And that, that's pretty cool. Well, who led you to the Lord? Not oh, Jesus. Uh, really? Jesus talked to you? Yeah, it was really radical. I was blinded afterwards. But a bright light? Paul's just on the ground. He's laid out. And the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's there blind. He's going blind in the light. He hears it. He's like, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Why are you kicking against the goats? The goat is a, a pointy stick they would put at the hills of oxen. So if oxen wanted to turn left or right instead of go straight, they would put the thing and it would hit the little sharp nail and out and start walking forward. He's like, you're just kicking against it. God's Holy Spirit was convicting him. Paul tells us later that very first martyr, Stephen, when Stephen looked to heaven and saw the Lord seated there and he just fell asleep as he was being stoned to death, it affected Paul, but he just hardened his heart. Paul's there in Damascus blind. He can't eat. He can't drink. He realizes, you're kidding me. I was was hating God. I was blind to the Messiah. I lived in Jerusalem. I heard about Jesus. I'm not going to go listen to that guy from Nazareth. I heard about his crucifixion. I don't care. I don't have time. I'm studying. I'm getting my doctorate. (laughs) I have time to go see people hung on the cross. He was all around him teaching. It was all happening. While he was in Jerusalem, he didn't catch any of it. And now he's just mad about this Christianity and wanting to wipe it out. And now he's sitting there in Damascus. And he's just like, who am I? Who am I that you would do this for me? Why why would you stop me in my tracks? Why would you, Jesus, speak from heaven for little old me? Why would you lead me to Damascus and then prophesy to this guy Ananias to come and lay hands on me and scales fell from my eyes and and then he prophesied, you've got a ministry now to the Jews and the Gentiles. You're to preach the gospel where it's never been preached and God's going to take you through to kings and before great rulers and and he's going to show you how much you must suffer for his name's sake. Paul just sensed God as God filled him up with his Holy Spirit right there. Faith. I mean, Paul would have been sort of like a doubting Thomas, don't you think? 
Doubting Thomas. Remember the Apostle Thomas? Hardened his heart, didn't he? Lest I put my finger in his hole in his hand, unless I can put my hand in his side where that spear was there. I'm not, forget this whole Christianity thing. I forget Jesus. Forget the whole last three years of my life. And Jesus appears and says, Thomas, poke away, man. Here's my hand. Here's my side. And Thomas, in a moment, was just flooded with faith. Oh, Jesus, my Lord. Blessed are you, Thomas, because you see and believe, but more blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Paul was just graced with an exceedingly abundant grace. Paul, you're so hard of heart. I'm going to appear to you myself. I'm going to talk to you myself. I'm going to blind you and put you in a place. My Holy Spirit is just convicting you like crazy through the law to show you your arrogancy, to show you how sinful you are. Even though you're a Pharisee of Pharisees living this legalistic life, you still sin in your head off. You're still a wicked man. You're just unwilling to look at your own wicked, sinful condition. Those three days, he's just broken, can't eat, can't sleep, can't drink. Then Anaskais comes in, and the Holy Spirit, with faith and what? Love. The scales fall from his eyes. Brother Saul. (laughs) Ananias was scared to death of this guy. He was shaking. God's called you now to go preach the gospel. Paul experienced it. It wasn't just God putting me into ministry. It wasn't just God empowering me and counting me faithful. But he just, this river, he drowned me in this grace. And he was so exceedingly abundant and so kind and so tender. So full of faith. So full of love. Oh, it was true Christianity. A tender thing. You know, it's interesting right now. A lot of people are throwing away Christianity in this COVID time. Why? Because they've been looking at a corporate Christianity that is so unbiblical. Oh, you go to that church with a thousand people, you must be successful. The Mormon church has a thousand people in it and a lot more. So does the Watchtower. So do the Muslims. Having a big building and a lot of people doesn't mean that you're some blessing from God. What what is it we're to do? Let's just start with love. Let's just start with kindness. Let's just start being this gracious person in the overflow of love and grace and kindness. And just people are just sensing that gentleness and that tenderness of Jesus. And they want to snuggle up to you because you're gentle and lowly of heart. And they find a rest for their souls hanging out with you. Paul says in verse 15, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul says there's two things, you know, what does the one guy say? One thing, two things you can know, death and taxes, you know. Um, <laughs> well, Paul says, here's two things you can be guaranteed of. Number one, Christ came into this world to save 
sinners, not to pound them, not to condemn them, not to step on them, not to make them feel guilty, not to point his finger and say, you're such a horrible, evil, wicked, smelly sinner. Uh, No, he came to save them. That's the number one thing. Christ, with kindness and graciousness and love, came to save sinners. And the second thing, the number one sinner that will ever live on this planet is me. Anybody want to argue with Apostle Paul on that? I think I'm on the top of that list. Anybody else? I always look at this going, Paul, no, that's, you, you got this wrong. This is where the Bible is incorrect. There's errors in the Bible, I know. First Corinthians, or First Timothy 1.15. There, there is an error in the Bible. Paul says he's the chief of all sinners, and it's actually me. So there's the error in the Bible. <laughs> Don't you want to hang around people? who see themselves like that? Not, not some holy guy who believes himself to be so righteous and he's sort of uptight and, you know, he's this rule keeper because I got this holy thing going, man. I've been holy for 10 years and I'm going to make it to 11 years. And, you know, don't get in my way and, you know, don't, don't throw me off my game here, man. I, I've been living holy now for 10 years in a row. Don't, I can't, I can't handle being around people like that. They just stress me out. <laughs> but people like Paul just saying, what, what does he say there? He doesn't say, I was the chief of all sinners. Do you, do you see that in verse 15? He's talking in the present tense. He goes, yeah, I, before I became a Christian, I was this horrible guy. But right now, there's two things you can count on. Christ came to save sinners, the worst of the worst of the worst. And secondly, I am the worst. <laughs> I am presently the chief of all sinners. Paul was a guy that was gracious and kind because he knew how much he struggled. He didn't have condemnation for other people who struggled. Paul struggled. Paul, Paul wasn't riding some giant high wave of holiness. He struggled. How do we know this? He tells us. In Galatians 6, we see his heart. In verse 1 through 3, he says, Brethren, if a man's overtaken and he trespass, you are spiritual. Restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Yeah, that guy tripped and fell today. You will be tripping and falling. And when you're the one tripping and falling, you have have this pattern of you being gentle and kind to others. Bear with one another's burdens. Don't judge them and condemn them. So fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love one another as he has loved us. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If you don't see yourself as the chief of all sinners, you're not accurately looking at yourself. In Romans 8, Verse 31 to 34, listen to what he says. What shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who makes intercessions for us. Do you see what Paul's saying? This is the world I live in. 
I, I live in a world that I, I don't expect all these Christians, you know, you'll know they're Christians because they're living such a holy, holy life. Is that what the Bible says? It said you'd know they're Christians, little Christ, like Christ, because of their love for one another. How does that love look most of the time in this world? It's comforting the fallen. It's comforting the hurting. That's, that's how we see love. It's when we love one another. The world looks in and they say, those are Christians because they're loving one another. You're falling. It's okay. The righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up. Get back up. I know, I'm, I'm a sinner too. Have you ever done that? Well, not that. No, I'm not that bad. But no, either way. You're, you're, God, will, God, will get, no. God will cover you. Get up. Let's go. God, God's not condemning you. Satan is. Your flesh is. I'm not. The church isn't. Christ is not condemning you. He's right now interceding for you in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Christ came to save not righteous people. Not people that think they're righteous anyway. He came to save sinners, right? Remember that in Matthew 9? Jesus was sitting down with, at Matthew's house, the tax collector who became one of his disciples, but all his tax collector buddies and the guy who owned the porn shop and the pimp down the street and the guy who was the head of the mafia on the east side of town. Matthew's old buddies, they all came, and here's the guy who owns the porn shop and the pimp and a bunch of tax collectors, and they're all sitting down and eating. And these Pharisees are invited too, and they're going, I can't believe he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Why does your master do that? And Jesus said there in Matthew 9, 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... We're all sick, but those who don't see it can't be helped, can they? And then he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a serious issue. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, Christ can't help you. The Apostle John said it very clearly in 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.10. For if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word, God's word, is not in us. What's between verse 8 and 10? Verse 9. 1 John 1.9. If we confess. Ah, now we understand what that Greek word is there for. The word confess literally means to agree with. If we agree that we are sinners. If we confess, does that mean you got to go and confess every sin? You wake up at three in the morning going, I forgot about that sin. I forgot to confess it. <laughs> no, the word confess is just a spirit of an agreement. God, you came to save sinners and I am a sinner. That's it. If you confess that you're a sinner, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you of the sin that you see and the millions you don't see. He just cleanses you from all unrighteousness. 
So why is it that Paul said, I am presently the chief of all sinners? I think a couple of reasons. One, it's this thing, you know, the closer you get to the mountain, the bigger the mountain becomes, right? Have you ever done that? I know I've flown over South America and we're supposed to see these giant mountains and at 30,000 feet you fly over and you're very unimpressed. <laughs> and then you land about 100 miles away and then you get in a bus and you start driving towards that mountain. And every mile you get closer to that mountain, what happens? Ah, you're, you're in awe. Well, think about it. The closer we walk with the Lord, the longer we walk next to the Lord, the closer we're getting to him, <laughs> the more awesome, the more holy he becomes, right? I love this quote. The longer I walk with Jesus, the less I sin, but the more I repent of my sinfulness. <laughs> The fact is, we do sin less, but yet, the closer we get to the Lord, the more sinful we appear, and the more righteous and holy and pure we see him. Isaiah, Isaiah was a holy prophet, guys. In Isaiah 6, you remember that? The year that Uzziah died? I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple and above it stood seraphim, each one six wings. Two covered his face, two covered his feet, two he flew with. And they cried out one to another, holy is holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaking and the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke, the Shekinah glory of God. So I said, woe is me. I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, when he saw the up-close version of the Lord, he felt like he was the most sinful person who has ever existed. Why is the other reason Paul said, I am presently the chief of all sinners? Because I think he understood how sinful these human bodies we live in really are. How sinful this earth really is. Remember in Romans 7, verse 14 and 15? For I know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I am sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Sound familiar? That was your prayer this morning, right? <laughs> Going on in Romans 7, verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in the members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity and the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. 
think Paul had a realistic expectation of this human flesh. And I might add, this is Paul towards the end of his life. This wasn't him like a week as a Christian. You know, that's just when he was first a Christian. That's the early Paul. You know, 2.0 Paul, you know, oh man, he was like, hey, I'm living holy now. I thought I would never get over it, but it took me about five years, but I got it down now. No, this is Paul at the end of his life. Sin, this flesh is, is just monstrous. The other, the other thing is when we see our flesh the way it is, how sinful we are, there's one gigantic advantage. We learn about it in Luke 7. Remember the sinful woman, probably a prostitute, and Jesus eating with the Pharisees and she sneaks in and just starts crying on Jesus' feet in repentance and taking her hair and washing his, her, his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees are going, if he was really holy, they wouldn't be... Jesus wouldn't let that sinful woman touch him. And remember, he says to the Pharisee, Simon, not the apostle, but the Pharisee. He says, let me ask you, if one guy owed somebody five cents, another guy owed him $50,000 and he forgave them both, who would forgive him the most? Or who would be the most thankful? Well, the guy who owed him the most, right. I came in here, you didn't wash my feet, which is customary in this culture. You let me just come on into your house with dirty feet, probably in the outside patio area. You didn't give me a customary gracious kiss. You've not done anything, but yet this woman, she's not kissing my face, she's kissing my feet. She's not washing my face with water, but with her own tears. She's not using a towel, she's using her own hair. Why? Because he who sins much, what? Loves much. That's the big advantage of seeing ourselves as we truly are. But he who sees himself sinning little, loves little. Well, finally, verse 16, however, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ may show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul is a pattern from the greater to the lesser. If Paul can be saved and become the great apostle, then any of us have, can be saved and anybody, any of us can be used in a great way in the Lord. And then in verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus is the king eternal, Ruling and reigning in complete power and glory. Jesus, our Lord, our God, is immortal, existing before anything else existed, and being the creator of all things. Jesus, our Lord, our God, is invisible, not completely knowable to us. We can't completely figure out God or know all his secrets. Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, alone is wise. He is God and we are not. We think our plans and our insights are so important, but only God really knows and understands all things. Let us honor him. Let us bring glory unto him forever and ever and ever. I wonder how strengthened Timothy would have been hearing this. I wonder if he would have sensed an encouragement in his heart. There's two things that overcome 
Satan. In Revelation 12, 11, it says, And they, the saints, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. What's the second most important thing? The word of their testimony. How Jesus reached you. How Jesus is, did forgive you and is forgiving you. And how Jesus is putting you into the ministry. And they, loved their, they did not love their lives to death. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Continue to speak it deep into our hearts. Cause a great work of grace in us, Lord, that we also, Lord, would revel in your glory to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And if you're here right now and you've got it tonight that God loves you, And he is reaching out to you to put faith in your heart through the preaching of the word. And he is coming with his love right now to reach out to say, I want to forgive you and wash you and cleanse you. And for you to come into relationship with me where I continue to make you white as snow without spot or blemish or wrinkle. I want to pick you up in my arms as my own precious lamb. Right now, just say, Lord, here I am. Forgive me. Through the work of the cross, you paid the price for my sins. You rose again, conquering my sins. Forgive me. I want to know your love. I want to know your kindness. I want to walk in your purposes. Here I am, Lord. That's all it takes. If you believe in Jesus as Lord, God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. God is rich to all those who call upon his name. Call out to him. And while we sing this song, just pour your heart out to him, saying, Lord, I give my life to you.